0: If we find signals of some kind, if we find a signature of a, of a other civilization, will it be our age or younger or older? And it turns out that, you know, David did the, the mathematical Kung Fu and he was able to show that it'll be older, quite possibly much older. Right. So this raises the question of what happens to a civilization that lasts 10,000 years, 100,000? billion, you know, a million or a billion years, right? I mean, it just, we've been around as a technological civilization, i.e. radio plus, a hundred years, right? And it's not clear we're going to make it another thousand years, right? Humanity's got some issues. Um, so what is what happens to a civilization when it progresses that far? And that's kind of the question you're asking, like, would I expect that they'd all become spacefaring, right? And that they, you know, hop from one Civil, you know, one star system to the other where they, you know, they're pretty much spread out and cross the entire galaxy. Is that possible? Are those technologies possible? Um, or is everything kind of a one-off? Everybody's kind of trapped in their own solar system because you can't travel faster than the speed of light. And then I would just expect local, local sites of civilization and I don't have galactic civilizations at all. So, you know, I think that's anybody's guess and that's what makes this field studying this so exciting, right? Which one is it going to be?
1: Welcome to Merged. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, we're joined by Professor Adam Frank. Professor Adam Frank is a Helen and Fred Goen Professor in Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester, New York. He was the principal investigator on NASA's first grant to study technosignatures. He's also the author of a new book being released on October 24th titled The Little Book of Aliens, a little book on the biggest questions surrounding our search for extraterrestrial life, questions we finally stand ready to answer. I also stand ready for answers. Thanks for joining me, Adam.
0: Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: In the spirit of heart questions, uh, perhaps we can start with this. Where are we going to find answers to whether there's life elsewhere in this universe?
0: Yeah, Ryan, that's a great question. And, you know, I kind of wrote the book. The whole point of the book was to give people sort of a vision of where we are right now in the search for life in the universe. Um, and, you know, this is an old question, right? It's 2,500 years, people yelling at each other, sometimes burning each other at the stake uh, over it. Um, but right now uh, in the astronomy, we have telescopes. We finally have developed the telescopes and the technologies to find evidence, signatures of alien life on alien planets. And, you know, that's unprecedented. We're we're finally going to be able to look where aliens live and hopefully find signatures, you know, sci- good scientific data about um, their presence.
1: Hmm. Well, in your book, you discuss the concept of, a, I believe it's pronounced noosphere. Is that correct?
0: Uh, yeah, I've heard it pronounced different. It, nosphere, sometimes. Noosphere. noosphere. yeah.
1: I've heard the term before, and I think that's how I used to pronounce it uh, when I was younger, reading it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Regardless, um, now you're saying it's referred to as a technosphere today. So what yeah. exactly is a technosphere? Um, why are you searching for one?
0: Yeah, so um, this is something I cover in the book. Uh, There's both, when we think about life, right, Uh, and the origin of life and the evolution of life on planets, the old idea was like, oh, you know, life life is something that happens in a puddle somewhere and it gets started. Uh, But now I think what we really understand from studying, you know, the long history of the Earth, we now know about the 4 billion year history of life and the planet evolving together, or maybe 3.8 billion year history. And what we know is is that life hijacks planets. Life isn't something that happens on a planet, it happens to a planet, right? Mm-hmm. It completely takes over. So um pretty early on, probably after maybe half a billion years, the Earth had evolved a biosphere, which means that the, there was enough microbial life to alter the atmosphere to alter the the uh, oceans to alter the way the planet was functioning so we call that a biosphere and now of course you know, you look at the planet um and you can clearly see that there's a biosphere right you look from space and you can see the green forests the 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 rainforests or the um uh, the boreal forests surrounding the uh, um arctic uh so there's a biosphere and that's what we're going to be looking for when we're looking for evidence of non-technological life we're going to be looking for biosignatures of biospheres, but at the same time, as we've seen with the evolution of life, the evolution of intelligent life on this planet, to the degree that we're really intelligent, sometimes I wonder, um, uh, technosphere, we've developed a technosphere, the sum total of technological activity has also completely changed the the earth's, the functioning of the earth, and that's what climate change is about, that's what, what they call the anthropocene, we're clearly a very successful species. And we're altering the planet. And any that should happen on any planet that evolves a technological species at some point, they'll because we're, we're new at this and we've already changed the planet. So you, get, you have a species that's been around for a thousand years longer and you should expect those uh, civilizations to alter, to create technospheres.
1: Mm-hmm. And those technospheres, as they develop, I guess from the outside looking in, it would be a change in the signal you're looking for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, So the interesting thing, and this is something I really wanted to illustrate for people in the book so they could understand how it is exactly, because it's amazing. We can now find signatures of both biospheres and technospheres. Um, so the real question that you have to figure out, that's what you have to do the science of, is to figure out what does a technosphere do to its planet that might be detectable? How does, how does the technosphere translate into techno-signatures? Um and so that's what my group the the group that I lead the NASA this is the first time NASA ever funded uh, anything to study at, you know planetary technospheres before so um uh the what we see is that there are ways in which say atmospheric releasing chemicals into the atmosphere either by mistake like we like we do with pollution or on purpose in order to terraform your planet to change your planet you could see those from across interstellar distances, even the James Webb Space Telescope is just at the edge. We wrote a paper on this of being able to detect certain kinds of chemicals in the atmosphere. And if we saw those chemicals, because they don't, you know, they, they couldn't be produced by nature, we would know that there was a, a civilization there.
1: That's very interesting. Um, so y- you've been involved with SETI as well, the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. Is that or? That's the correct uh, acronym, correct?
0: Yeah, that's the Connect Act. Yes, yes, that's the. And I would call it the classic name. I think the name is changing. I think the whole field is changing. I think now we call it techno signatures.
1: So you see these two fields merging into in the one activity.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted the people. Why I wanted to read the write the book is so people could see that what we traditionally thought of SETI, which is like you know people listening with radio beacons or radio telescopes. For beacons, that was the old way of doing things, right? And it was was the old way because that's what the technology allowed. So with classic SETI, the stuff that like Frank Drake started in 1960 with his first search, um, you had to really be looking for a beacon. You needed somebody to purposely be sending you a message, right? Uh, And I always, always was like, well, what if they don't want to do that? Like That assumes that they're like us and they want to send beacons. The great thing about technosignature science, now that we have these powerful new technologies, is we can just look for civilizations or biospheres going about their business. They don't, we don't have to assume they want to communicate with us. We can just see a civilization doing its civilizationing with these new techniques. And so that's why I think classic SETI is still going to happen. It's still great. There's still interesting things to be done. You know, especially with machine learning and AI, we can, we can ask those questions in new ways. But techno Really broadens what it means to search for technological to you know technological life intelligence civilizations, and that's really the revolution I want people to understand, and that's really what a bit large part of the book is about.
1: Can you speak to some of those different techniques beyond perhaps um, I think right now a lot of attention is being given to uh, the transient passing method of being able to detect um, um exoplanets. But you mentioned there's multiple techniques to potentially detect um, will at least stay on the te- technosphere side. Could you speak to maybe what some of those other techniques
0: are? Maybe ranked from most plausible to least? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, actually, I think the transit method is still going to be the basis of all of them because, I mean, there's there's other ones we can talk about, but the tra- what's so great about the transit method is when the star passes, so you know, the transit method works when a a planet orbiting a star passes in front of its star. And it gives us a little like, you know, mini eclipse. A little bit of the light is blocked by the planet and some of the light, some of the starlight that uh, um, will actually pass through the planet's atmosphere. And when it passes through the atmosphere, it gets absorbed. And so it allows us to like get signatures, get what we call spectral signatures of what's happening in that planet's atmosphere. Or other things that are, you know, what's happening when the planet, when the starlight bounces off the planet's atmosphere. So let me give you some examples of techno signatures we're looking for. So the, uh, right, the first one was atmospheric pollution. And we wrote a paper on that and showed that the JWST could find chlorofluorocarbons, which is something that we use. You know, probably, you know, the JWST was ready. Certainly if the JWST can't do it, the next telescope that we're going to be putting into orbit will be able to do it. But then solar panels. Right. One of the things that we're working on right now is to show that if a if a civilization used solar collectors of any kind, pretty much, any mineral, any kind of element you'd use that's really good at catching sunlight and turning it into electricity, um, that will leave an imprint on the light that's bouncing off the the, the planet. So there will be this Is it a reflection issue or there's more being absorbed? It's the reflection. There's something that would there's what would be what would they call the UV edge. If you looked at the reflectance You know, if you looked at the starlight and then the starlight bouncing off the planet, you'd see differences. And that difference is um, it would be a sharp jump in around the ultraviolet uh, band of the spectrum. And what's interesting, so that would be a very powerful technosignature. And what's interesting, there's already a biosignature called the red edge. On Earth, all of the chlorophyll, all of the things that are doing photosynthesis, impose the exact same kind of signature, but more it shows up in their transition from green to red light. You see a big mm-hmm. jump in the um, reflectance. So uh so we we you know we already know that there's this biosignature for Earth life. Now we can see that there's a techno signature for any kind of technological civilization using solar panels. So that's another one. A third one, and I go through all of these in the book, uh uh artificial illumination, right? So, you know, if these creatures have eyes, you know, if these creatures are are using visual light as a as a sensor. Then they'll probably do what we do, which is on the night side, you know, create artificial illumination. And there was a great paper using the next generation of space telescope, the one that's probably coming in twenty years. We would be able to detect city lights on the dark side of some of these worlds. So those so are that's just the like next things. generation
1: technology, and we're talking, but we're talking about maybe like a direct observation of those uh, yeah. lights, yeah. not just a uh, change in frequency absorption. Potentially, actually observing it.
0: Well, what you would see in that case, it would still be spectral in the sense yep. of you would be looking for all the, you know, like all the halogen lamps we use on the highways and everything. They have a very particular spectral feature in the light that in that case, we'd be directly, I mean, it's direct in the sense we'd be able to see the direct spectral feature of that. We're not looking up for the absorption of starlight. We'd actually see the sum total light, uh, the, the artificial illumination that we'd see that. So How let me far tell you away are we from
1: launching that next generation capability?
0: That's actually a great question, because what happened was, this is what's really amazing about this field. You know, when I was coming up as a graduate student, you know, I've been in this business for 30 years now. When I was coming up as a graduate student, you know, the whole idea of searching for life of any kind was kind of like, eh, you know, a lot of, there weren't many astronomers who were into it. Things have changed so much. We've had so many revolutions in astrobiology, the study of life in the universe, that now The, the, uh, the astronomical community, when it got together and decided what its highest priority is, and that's how the, how NASA decides what to fund, a, what's called the Habitable Worlds Observatory was number one. That's a telescope that will replace JWST, um, will be, you know, multi-billion dollar telescope. And that we're looking at. So that's what, that's what we're going to do. We're going to build the Habitable Worlds Observatory, maybe 20 years. I would say that's how long it takes to build one of these things. So, but that's in our lifetime, right? Even me at 60, I'll still be, I might be drooling (laughs) on myself a little bit, but I'll still be around for when that telescope gets launched. So, you know, it's, it's the next 10, 20, 30 years. We're going to have data about life in the universe, real hard data. I don't know what it's going to say, but we're going to have data.
1: Can you plan your research to prepare for that technology, that capability to come up? Uh, is there a prep you need to do or do you really have to just wait for the data before you can start making some some headway in, in some potential avenues of intellectual um, exploration?
0: Ryan, that's a great question because it goes right to the heart of how hard this science is. Yeah, people are planning right now. We are literally right now setting up, getting, preparing ourselves for uh, uh, some talks with the people who are, you know, starting the process, the 20 year process of designing the Habitable Worlds Observatory exactly to say like, hey, if we're going to include techno signatures, here's the kind of things we need you guys to include in the the detectors, right? You know, this thing that's going to be flying in space is going to have, it's going to be a big telescope, but it's also going to have a bunch of detectors looking at light in different wavelengths. And we're getting started on that process. Now you've got to start, you've got to start planning. Science requires, you know, decades getting ahead of the curve to be able to plan So that your instrument has everything it needs and also can do everything that you need to do. That you're sure that you validated all the different technologies. That you're actually going to get the data you need of the quality.
1: It's not a trivial problem at all. So would you say, you know, in the scope of the, uh, the what's capable now and where we're looking to from a mainstream scientific perspective for techno signatures is... Uh, the transient method and improved uh, spectral analysis, more fidelity, better capabilities. Is that the primary tool that we have in our toolbox?
0: Yeah, that's the, that's the primary, that's the tool that we're building. Those are the tools that we're building. And because mm-hmm. we already have versions of these, we've already seen that they work. Um, and so now, you know, the process with science is refining it, making it stronger, making it more powerful, making it more accurate. So two weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago, um, there was a a, a a James Webb Space Telescope press release, and they were looking at this entirely new class of potentially habitable planets. These are planets that are eight times the mass of Earth. They're, we call them Hycean worlds, hydrogen uh, ocean worlds. Mm-hmm. And they were lo- they were doing this method that we talked about, and they clearly saw like like beautiful, perfect uh, uh, detection of methane and carbon dioxide. In the atmosphere of this world, and this is a new kind of class of world. It's not like an Earth-like world, but it probably has you know a hydrogen atmosphere and then an ocean, like a deep ocean that's wet and warm and you know, warm enough for life to form. And so they clearly saw these two chemicals in its atmosphere, and they even got a hint. You know, it really wasn't it wasn't a detection, but it was a hint of dimethyl sulfide, which is the stuff that um, plankton fart out into the atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere is full of dimethyl sulfide mm-hmm. because of life. So it was super exciting. And so now the thing is, we just got to refine these methods. We need better, more powerful telescopes so that we can start really doing this wholesale. So that's what makes it so exciting.
1: Very fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I think I well, I didn't read the paper, but I at least saw the highlights on it. I believe it was about a three sigma um, result um,
0: the, with some yeah. of
1: those things. So, I mean, significant, but not not without uh, without doubt. So yeah, better capabilities, better tools, I imagine, are just going to move us towards uh, more confidence, what that really is. Very interesting. That's exactly
0: it. Yeah, yeah. So the I think the, the, I think the CO2 was five sigma, which is like the gold standard for hmm. detection. So that one was for sure. The methane was three sigma, which is getting there. But right, we need more data. You just need to take more observations to climb that accuracy up or the confidence up. And then the dimethyl sulfide was like one sigma. So nobody really believes that one. But it was like a hint of like what you could do. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so let me just, can I just tell you about one other like insane idea for, for looking at exoplanets, which is work. It's working its way through the NASA sort of, you know, scientific, um, validation. So the sun, right. It's big ball of mass. And as we know from Einstein's theory of general relativity, matter acts as a lens matter, bends space, right? So every star is kind of like a lens. Every star has this capacity to uh bend light as it passes close by. So there's this idea of using the sun as a giant lens to magnify the image of a distant exoplanet. So all you have to do <laughs> to make this work is you need to send a flotilla of spacecraft about to to 500 times the distance uh, uh, that the Earth is from the sun, 500 astronomical units, as we call it. And if you could do that, if you could get like this flotilla of spacecraft and you have to aim it in just the right direction. So when it looks at the exoplanet, the sun is kind of slightly, you know, in the field of vision, you could get, this is amazing. You could get um, a map of that exoplanet down to like kilometers, tens of kilometers, right? You could see Manhattan. On, you know, and so this idea sounds insane, uh, but actually, it's already made it through like three tiers of the NASA, you know, validation. Um, so it's an idea that that you know, it's pro- that idea is probably you know, we're looking if if they could make it work because they even think they can get this the to ha- the spacecraft using solar solar sails they could get them out there pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's a longer term idea, maybe fifty years, but. Could you imagine seeing an exoplanet with resolution where you could see features down to like 10 kilometers?
1: I mean, that's ultimately the dream, isn't it?
0: That's the dream. That is the dream. Because then you could tell, you could pick out cities, you know? You could pick out forests, you could pick out cities, you could pick out river basins, you could pick out, you know, fat clusters of factories. It's amazing. and it's It seems like right now the idea seems crazy, but it seems like just crazy enough to work.
1: <laughs> well, I'm happy you're working on it. I mean it would be an incredible discovery um where do you you know kind of perhaps more speculative, but as we kind of look out there where would you where would you perhaps expect to see these signatures? would you expect them to see see them in a in a galaxy far off in a way would you expect them to see see them within our galaxy perhaps spread out? would you see them in perhaps some ring you know would you see them clustered near us how how would where you see them and what what are the implications of those
0: yeah that is a great question well first of all for the next 20 or 30 years we got to look close by like we just cuz that's all we can do you know we're going to be looking 10 20 30 40 light years away 100 light years away we're just not going to have our telescopes aren't going to be powerful enough to really detect the signatures that we're talking about to you know to thousands or hundreds of thousands of light years you know the galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across so there's no way we're going to be seeing on the other side of the galaxy but you know this brings up the question of what do civilization what kind of civilizations are possible for you know space right for 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 alien for other kinds of life um so i did a paper with david kipping a few years back david kipping is a astro very smart astrophysicist at the um columbia University. And uh, we did an analysis, this is also with Caleb Scharf, another astronomer, and we did an analysis to ask this question. When, if we find signals of some kind, if we find a signature of a, uh, of a other civilization, will it be our age or younger or older? And it turns out that, you know, David did the, the mathematical Kung Fu and he was able to show that it'll be older, quite possibly much older. Right? So this raises the question of what happens to a civilization that lasts 10,000 years, a hundred thousand, a billion, you know, a million or a billion years, right? I mean, it's just, we've been around as a technological civilization, i.e. radio plus a hundred years, right? And it's not clear we're going to make it another thousand years, right? Humanity's got some issues. Um, so what is, what happens to a civilization when it progresses that far? And that's kind of the question you're asking. Like, would I expect that they'd all become spacefaring, right? And that they, you know, hop from one, Civil, you know, one star system to the other where they, you know, they're pretty much spread out and cross the entire galaxy. Is that possible? Are those technologies possible? Um, or is everything kind of a one-off? Everybody's kind of trapped in their own solar system because you can't travel faster than the speed of light. And then I would just expect local, local sites of civilization. And I don't have galactic civilizations at all. So, you know, I think that's anybody's guess. And that's what makes this field studying this so exciting, right? Which one is it going to be?
1: I know that there's a lot of forward momentum on the type of technologies and capabilities you're talking about to move the conversation forward. I originally phrased this as a yes or no question, but perhaps that's not the right way. But perhaps you could give examples of what deeper physical understanding of our universe might open up the search space for techno signatures.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think... In terms of the understanding the physics of what we want to know, I mean, well, like Maybe one I can give a
1: specific example to Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead um, please. One one example is the um, the recent announcement that they may have uh, been able to detect the, the uh, gravitational background uh, waves. Uh, What can we learn from that potentially Uh, if we look at, you know, gravity and LIGO potentially as a new sensor mechanism now that we have access to those types of tools? So are there any other perhaps cohorts of capabilities or technologies that you're aware of that might be important for this conversation?
0: That is a great question. That is really interesting because people have proposed going way back, actually, even in the 60s, people kind of proposed the idea of either using neutrinos, right? That maybe a significantly advanced civilization would be able to focus beams of neutrinos Um, uh, as a, as a means of, of communications. Um, certainly gravity waves. You know, gravity waves, think about gravity. I mean, it's a lot easier to produce neutrinos. So, neutrinos are these ghostly particles that come up, you know, about through, um, certain kinds of nuclear reactions. They, you know, there's literally a torrent of neutrinos passing right through our bodies right now. They barely interact with matter. But because of that, actually, there's a reason why people think they might be, if you could produce enough of them and focus them, they might be a good, signal that could be seen across galaxies. Um, So that's probably easier for a civilization to do than gravity waves, right? Because gravity waves require, you got to have a big chunk of mass and you got to shake it back and forth. So the reason why we, we, you know, the gravity wave detectors have focused on black hole mergers, you know, two black holes orbiting each other and merging is because that is such a spectacularly violent event that it produces gravity waves that we can detect with LIGO and other things. So a civilization would have to be very advanced to be able to manipulate um matter, you know, on those kinds of scales in some determined way, to be able to send a signal or 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 the, or you know, let's say they were they're astroengineering, they're moving black holes around for their own energy harvesting purposes. That would be a very advanced civilization. So uh was, it's go ahead
1: I was just going to say, I, I to continue the speculation a bit here on this topic, um, I did a little research on this topic. Um, there's an interesting proposal that's been called the Ramadar. I think it's a play on uh, Rama and radar. Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: Um And it, my understanding of it is that they essentially baseline the capabilities of LIGO to suggest that if you had a, what they call a rapid and or massive accelerating uh Spacecraft or Rama craft right um, then then if it was accelerated to ten times the speed of light and it was about the same mass as Jupiter, that might be something that's detectable with our current at our current technological level um yeah one, I'm a huge fan. I used to read the Rama series when I was a kid. uh I Love thought that, that was point. a great series. I read it many yeah. times yeah um yeah. so I really appreciate their naming here um what do you have you read this paper and is is that um of interest to you at all?
0: No, I haven't read the paper. I have to say Rama, Rendezvous with Rama is one of my favorite Arthur C. Clarke books. That book was so great and was so exciting. And then, you know, when we had the um uh uh um uh the, the comet pass uh, oh, 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 um, uh, through a Muamua pass through you know everyone was like, Oh my god, it's Rama you know. <laughs> yeah. Um didn't quite <laughs> was turn my out first that way. But, as well. <laughs> right, right. But sooner or later, maybe, right? Even if I don't you know I don't think <laughs> Rama I don't think muamua was, um, but because we just don't have the data to tell. But, you know, certainly we should be looking. So, but the idea of might we see the uh, consequences of their acceleration mechanisms of their starship, Starcraft? Absolutely. Right. And so in a bunch of different ways, we might be able to see something like that if they're using some kind of a super advanced gravitational drive, maybe we'd be able to pick that up with LIGO. If you started to see anomalous kinds of signals like that, maybe that would be on your list of like, we don't understand what this is. Could it be you know, a techno signature. But even um, in light, right? What we are already pursuing the idea of driving spacecraft up to uh, close to the speed of light using uh, phased array, laser arrays, right? This is the breakthrough Starshot, which I think is a very interesting idea. You have a light sail, you have this giant laser that you hit the light sail with the, um, the, the light from the laser and you can accelerate it up to close to the speed of light pretty quickly. If that was a common way of propelling spacecraft around even around solar systems let's say you've got a a a, a, a a a civilization that has landed you know has settled most of its planets and they're moving things back and forth with these laser rays maybe we'd catch one like as you know they're they're just driving a spaceship with this laser but we you know the the laser passes in front of our telescopes so that's another interesting possibility people have talked about that you catch the flares that you know right now our telescopes aren't really there but over time we will have the ability and we now have a lot of telescopes that are looking for transients transient features and maybe that's something that's going to show up in the transient telescope searches
1: where does your gut tell you you know where where does the line draw so you know we'll get into UAP here in a little bit but uh, mm-hmm. I know that's a, a topic you have uh, expressed some opinions on and we'll we'll talk about them but you know where where do you draw the line between the I guess you could call it disconnect. Maybe it's not a disconnect, but maybe it's a connection between how quickly we're developing these capabilities in our society to detect things around us and to expand our understanding and to send probes and, you know, information to other places in the universe. And we've done that in such a small amount of time. What's the big thing that's, you know, the break in your your gut that's saying, hey, nothing could come here. That's that's a much lower probability based off yeah. how fast we can see technology advance and how we're now right. seeing and searching for other life out there.
0: Right, right, that, that's a really good question, Ryan. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things that, that's a part of what I'm trying to explain in the book about sort of, you know, there's my gut, but there's also, you know, the, my, the processes of science that I anything we talk about when we're talking about aliens, we have to try as best we can to take, as I I always like to say, science is constrained imagination, right? You know, we can reach amazing heights with our speculation, but it's got to be kind of, we have to try to ground it into the laws of physics and chemistry and, you know, and biology that we understand, even if we're extrapolating. Because the thing is, we know a lot of science, right? And it may be that there's lots more science to find out there, but it's still going to have to sit on top of the science that we understand. So the disconnect can happen, as you say, when when the speculation sort of like untethers itself from the kind of systematic way you have to apply the laws of physics and, you know, the and law, the laws of the universe uh, to any problem, to any problem you want to take on. How do you go about, how do you go about exploring the unexplored in a way that keeps your feet on the ground, right? Because you want to have an open mind, but you know as they say, you don't want your mind to be so open that your brains fall out. <laughs> so that's the trick. That's the line we're trying to walk. especially as scientists in the scientific search for this. So I, uh, as we can talk about this, I'm involved in some parts of the what we call solar, it's it's called solar system set, right? You know, has a previous civilization perhaps passed through the solar system and left something, right, that we could find? So I'm literally right now involved in a project where we're calculating how long would you be able to see, this is one way to phrase the question, how long would the the lunar lander be visible. You know, if you were taking pictures of the moon once every you know, once every million years, how long would that lunar lander show up in those pictures? And so you got to do the detailed calculation of micrometeorites, you know, hitting the... And the reason we're doing this is because, yes, I think it's possible, you know, that somebody passed through uh, and left artifacts someplace. So the, then the question becomes, are they here now? And that, you know, it's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying that, that what you then have to ask is why now? Why in this brief window that we're here? How many, you know, times has it happened? And so it's that where we start to form a disconnect, but also it can inform how we go about doing the search, right? You, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that NASA is having these searches. I'm skeptical that the, we'll, as we'll talk about, Um, But skepticism doesn't mean no, it just means like this is the kind of data that we'll need. So let me just let me just finish this point on one. So one of the weird things about thinking about life in the universe, like we've got 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, but if a civilization only lasts, say, a thousand years, let's say the average lifetime for a technological civilization is a thousand years, it means it's really easy for the galaxy right now to be sterile. There may have been lots of old civilizations that are gone now, but there might not be anybody around right now. And so that's really like that's one of the things you have to think about. It depends on how long lived civilizations are. And if they're not super long lived, then you know we just in our little window while we're here, there's nobody else around.
1: Uh you touched on this a little bit uh earlier, but have you f- at any point faced any stigma from your colleagues or those that you respected because of your interest in techno signatures or pushing that part of the conversation forward scientifically into the mainstream?
0: Uh, remarkably, no. And that's been gratifying. Uh But I have been here for I've been watching a real transition uh in the community. You know, the as I talk about in the book, the reason why SETI was marginalized in the scientific community for two reasons. One was, it was definitely it was way ahead of its time. The methods that you had, as I explained, were you have to be looking for someone sending you a signal. And some people rightfully said, well, what are the odds of that? What assumptions do you have to say that someone's actually trying to send you a signal? Um, but the other reason was because of what happened with the culture of UFOs, because of what happened, you know, the history of UFOs, as I talk about in the book, um, there unfortunately was, there were, you know, was a lot of conspiracy theory mongering and a lot of hoaxes. And the SETI effort, Got tarred with that. So there's there's this very in the 80s and in the 90s, NASA tried to fund SETI, tried to really have a big SETI project. And Congress people, a bunch of Congress people, got up on you know the floor of the Congress and said, "We're not going to waste any taxpayers' dollars searching for little green men." So we call that in the field the "giggle factor." There's been this giggle factor about searches for life in the universe, which unfortunately got tied. You know, is linked to because the, the history of UFOs and how the discussion of UFOs has manifested. Um, and so that's what, when I was a graduate student in the late eighties, that was clearly the way it is. But now, because of these revolutions I'm talking about in, uh, astrobiology, all these exoplanets we found, NASA's already funding the search for biosignatures. And now I think because of our work, we're helping to push this along. It doesn't make any sense to put a lot of money into searching for biosignatures and then go like, no, 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 no technosignatures. We don't even want to hear about it. So I think mm-hmm. everybody's kind of recognizing that you're already doing this search anyway, include technosignatures. So that now you have to figure out how to have a rational, um, systematic search for technosignatures.
1: So, you know, I, I, I couldn't help noticing what you just talked about, of course, but, you know, you, the UFO conversation I almost killed off the funding for SETI, I think is how, how you put it in the book. Yeah. The conversation yeah. has uh developed quite a bit since then. Do you believe that the current very public debate over UAP is a net benefit toward identifying what I'll just loosely call non-human intelligence instead of aliens and signatures of their existence? Th- or is this discussion in your view a distraction?
0: Um, I think it's important. You know, people are interested. The thing about UFOs is people have always been interested, right? And so I, you know, and I, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, I saw something in the sky, I can't explain, I'm, I can never tell them they didn't, right? I I wasn't there. I don't know. You know, the problem has been the way it has morphed into this thing where people, you know, anything becomes evidence, right? Anything becomes, and it's not only just evidence, it's, it's certainty, right? Because the whole process of science is you don't know and you've got to figure out what's the best way to find out. And I, you know, the problem with the history, well, again, there's been those hoaxes and such. But I think what's happening now, and I, you know, I applaud what you've done. I think it's important that pilots are are able to come forward and say, I saw something. It did this. Right. You know, because that's the only way you're going to start a true scientific search about this. Now, as I said, I'm skeptical that it has that these things have anything to do with um, non-human intelligence. But in the end, the only way you're going to be able to figure this out is to actually do, you know, the same kind of science on that as we're doing On techno signatures and because people are so interested in this, um, I think it helps. It helps people. This is the most important question humanity has ever faced. Are we alone, right? Are we the only time life has occurred in the whole universe? And you know, the last part of the book is really dedicated to why this question matters so much that I think it's, it's reasonable for people to want to know. It's reasonable for people to want science to turn to it. And I'm glad that there, you know, the, the work that you've done, I'm glad that NASA is having that panel. I think that panel's going to help a lot. And, you know, over time we'll get some answers. And as, as, as you've said, as I've seen you said, whether it's, you know, airline safety, whether it's a national security issue or whether it's something more, you know, there's enough going on that it's worth doing its, the study. What
1: do you think of the, <clears throat> the, the videos that the, the government released, um, i'm i'm baiting you not baiting you but i'm i'm encouraging you to at least talk a little bit about how you, i'm gonna find the quote here yeah you said that a major problem with the, the government uap videos is that they come pre-digested already edited by someone including the audio uh and assumed to be real i thought that that was an interesting quote in your book because uh, essentially that's why i came forward uh i came forward to talk about what um, what else was seen on the radar system to kind of backfill right. a little bit on who the pilots were, and to be able to tell a story from uh, the perspective of someone you know that was there, uh, and that you know can talk to the pilots about this. Um, I agree with you that we were essentially preconditioned to think certain ways about those videos um right i don't know who named those videos it certainly wasn't the pilots <laughs> but you know right. all we really know is that the, the, the tapes came, the public knows that the tapes came out they're named a certain way and everyone uh, assumed that that meant uh something or the other um it's um i you know by my coming forward is my hope to try to provide some clarity and some honesty to what that situation was uh from the pers- people on the ground that were dealing with it. Do you think that we can really ever have an honest conversation in a way that will satisfy people if we are involving the government in this conversation? If it's not yeah. an open science conversation. Is there a path there?
0: I think that's gonna be very hard. I think it's gonna be very hard because, you know, I mean there's ways in which I understand from the military's perspective. Like, you know, if these are like, you know, you're the, these super Advanced electronic signals intelligence devices. You don't really want people to know what they can do, right? You don't want your peer state adversaries to know what they're going to what they do. And at the same time, you know, the government being the government, and of course, right, there's no one government, right? There's lots of different divisions. You know, I, for I had a company one time. I did a saw so, I had a so, educational software company, and I remember dealing with a big publisher, right? They you know they had many divisions. And I remember like trying to convince these guys to do something and they realized that the, their enemy was not the other publishers. It was one of the other divisions within their own company. Right. And so, you know, these big organizations, I think it can be very hard to get anybody to ever do anything, release anything to ever be transparent. Cause everybody's concerned about their own, you know, reputations or whatever. So I think you're right in the sense that I think we got to get our own data. Right. The only way forward on this is to say, you know, let's, Get our own data. You know, take some of the. You know, uh, you you know, uh, take some money. You know, hopefully not from science. Get it from somewhere else because we're already scrapped for cash. Um, But you know, let's take some money and and that's why I have that chapter in the book where I say if you wanted to do a true, transparent, fully transparent scientific search for to understand UAPs, here's how you do it. Right, and I had you know sort of laid out what a strategy for having this kind of uh, investigation would look like. So I kind of agree. I think. I think it's oh, you're always going to be going down the rabbit hole if you're trying to get the government to release stuff. So let's just do it ourselves, right? Let's just like NASA, you know, NASA will be transparent about it. NASA is transparent about everything it does. So let's, you know, build the instruments, show people how we're doing it and see what we get.
1: I'm sure there's going to be some kickback from the, the words that came to your mouth that NASA is transparent about everything. Uh, including by those that work at NASA, but we'll see how that plays out. Well, (laughs) you know,
0: in the sense of how the science works, right? I mean, this, you know, the, you know, I've I've been on, I've worked with people with the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, you know, the the science, how those instruments are built, how they're um, uh, calibrated, how the analysis was done, that stuff's all in the papers, right? If I want to know how the JWST filters, infrared light in between, you know, this wavelength and that wavelength. It's all in the literature. I can find everything I need to do. And so, and also the transparency here is that it's not NASA going to be writing the scientific papers. It's going to be scientists writing the scientific papers. And, you know, if you're not entirely transparent about what you've done, you're going to get shredded. I mean, what people have to understand is that science, we're mean to each other. We are very, very mean to each other, right? And there's this incredibly high standard about if you have data... And you have a conclusion you want to reach with that data. The links between that have to be rock solid or you're going to get your butt kicked. Right. There's nothing more terrifying than standing in front of like 10 people who are much smarter than you and having them interrogate you about the details of how you went about your business. So um, in that way, I think if we can you know, have this kind of set up, this kind of scientific study, then it will it will be transparent.
1: I agree. There, I mean, there's a, there's some efforts that I'm involved with at the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics where we're looking to do just that. Um, sure. I'm I'm eager to have more conversations on this podcast and um, at the conferences that we present at to to talk about um, how we're trying to create a framework to be able to do exactly what you say, be able to bring repeatable data and results to this conversation, so that people can. You know, follow the follow the steps forward to either you know, discovery or to to nullified results. But either way, uh, it needs to be done in a clean fashion. We need to respect the results of it. Um, here's a question. You know, Garrett, you're someone that has been interested in studying this now professionally, pushing forward the edge of where we can see as a species, as as a as a culture, and looking to see if there's anything else out there. I've been obviously involved with the UAP conversation, and for me, it's it's a different conversation. It's it's more agnostic in a sense. I don't know what these objects are or where they are, but there is a large cultural swell around it to say these things are, quote-unquote, aliens from other another planet. Um, I don't know how to make that leap. I don't know what that necessarily means, right? We, we see these objects are unknown. They have performance characteristics. That's really where the chain ends for me, and where we're still trying to—I'm still trying to find answers about. But one thing I've seen a lot pop up from NASA and from the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office and others is a common phrase they say, which is uh, usually it's at the beginning of the presentation where they say they have seen no evidence that anything unexplained had uh, an extraterrestrial origin. Um, and I've always. I thought that was an interesting statement that they seem to make definitively, which is fine because you can't uh, prove the absence of information in a sense. But, you know, what information or what evidence would be needed to assess an object of we'll just call it unknown technological origin and conclude with a high degree of certainty that it is the creation or agent of some species that evolved on another star system and traveled here by unknown means? I mean, that's really what we're talking about if we break it down. What parameters yeah. would be evaluated to make that conclusion?
0: Is so this a that-
1: question we can even answer? Is it a material science question? Is it a point of origin estimation? I mean, where would we even begin to answer that question?
0: God, that's a really, that's a really good question. And so I think, you know, um, and I talked a little bit about in my chapter about the, the, you know, how we'd actually carry out a UAP search. It's a couple of different things. As you said, one thing is just give me a piece of metal you know, or whatever, give me an, ar- give me a, an artifact that I can take to the lab and say like, this is not any element we've ever seen before, right? This is, you know, th- that would be great. And then you could take it to like 10 different labs and we'd all, you know, every lab would look at it and use different methods. And then the, they publish results in the scientific literature, which would be peer reviewed and everybody would yell and scream and argue about it. But in the end, we'd be able to conclude, you know, consu- co- uh, um, conclusively, yeah, conclude, conclusively, we'd be able to tell that this was just not anything that human technology had produced. Like that would be like the gold standard, right? Like what, you know, there's zorgonium in it. There's an element we don't even recognize or there's some kind of, you know, there's an alloy that has never been seen and has tensile strengths that are impossible by our standards. So that's one, right? That would be the best, right? Or a body, right? You know, this idea of, you know, the non-human biologics, which I'm not even sure what that word means. But, you know, like if, yeah, if you had a organic specimen that had was clearly different, those would all be like, Totally gold standard stuff. But if you don't have that, if you're just looking at, and this is probably if you're looking at UAPs, right? And you're, you know, if you, you build a, a sensor array, either in the ground, on the ground, or in the sky, and you're able to detect things moving through the sky on, at different wavelengths, because that's the important thing, right? You can't just like take a radar that was built for something else, you know, that you don't have that, you don't have access to that instrument, right? What scientists do, like the JWST, we know everything about the JWST, right? Like we know how it performs when it's 10 degrees above zero and when it's 30 degrees above zero and everything in between. Like it's, cause that's the only way we can tell the quality of our data. So let's say you had instruments like that and you were tracking things in the sky at lots of different wavelengths from lots of different angles. And you saw something moving, say it made a right-hand turn at Mach 500, right? That would be good evidence that like, you know, and you saw it multiple times and you saw it from, you know, multiple cameras. That would be good evidence that like, yeah, there's nothing this is beyond anything, you know, human technology can do. Um, So that's the kind of thing you'd be looking for. You know, what's interesting about that, though? Let's say you saw that and everyone's like, oh, my God, there's something in the sky that is what do you do next? Right. What would you do next? And some sense you just have to do more science. Right. Good science always leads to the next question. and so you'd have to do more science. And then you would also have to ask, do we try and shoot one down? <laughs> you know, like, what do you do? But it's an interesting thing that even if you had that kind of data, as you say, like, you'd have evidence of something, but what would the next step be?
1: When you talk about that data, you know, well, let me rephrase that. I don't know if you engage with your colleagues much on this, this topic, or if you've at least overheard their opinions on uh, the UAP topic, uh, but um, a lot of the times when I've engaged folks on this, there's always a um, a lack of interest to um, look at data. It's always show me the data, show me the data. Um, you know, the first part of that is that hey, we need to actually go gather data. We need to you know determine the right uh, sensor systems that should be used. We should build out a program so that we can have the proper dwell time over locations so we can get that corroborating evidence that you're talking about. Uh, We need to refine the sensors and be able to actually look at the raw data. Who's doing any of that work that would actually be required to come to an answer on this? Um, The answer is no one, really. So um, when you hear pushback or uh, I guess the giggle factor, as you say, on this, um, should we just not even engage in gathering more information? Is, Is that a waste or is this something that we should push past that giggle factor to engage science to get to an answer?
0: I think you're going to have to push back the giggle, giggle. I mean, the giggle factor. NASA, you know, what NASA, what is happening now with like the NASA panel or the, um, the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Galileo project, those are first steps of people trying to build out, uh, the first step. So I think there is a transition, right? Um, that people are beginning to be willing to pay attention to this. So, you know, the NASA panel gave its report and the, I think the conclusion is they're going to do more work. So it's a long process, I think. Um, well, you have to understand, I think what people have to understand is that, you know, to be a scientist, to take on a new project, you don't just dip in and dip out, right? It's literally, you're betting your life and because it's, you know, to, to change topics, you're going to spend a year, five years, a decade. You know, if you really, I've changed topics in my life a couple of times. I started off, uh, as a studying the how stars die. And then I switched over to how stars form. And now more recently I've switched over to astrobiology and it's, 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 you know, years of commitment so i mean sometimes people are like well why don't scientists just study this it's well part of it is because the history with ufos you know sort of the shenanigans surrounding things like roswell you know i'm sorry you know some of your viewers make it angry with me but like you know roswell no you know um that it's scientists are just like i don't i you know you're asking me to spend decades of my life on something that's going to end up i'm going to find out that's Somebody was hoaxing or that it was, you know, the data wasn't very good. So but I do think that now, you know, thanks again to the kind of things that, you know, you and your colleagues have done. People are going to take it seriously enough that we'll start to do those scientific searches that people will. You know, the, the people who were on that panel, the NASA panel, I know some of them, you know, um, they were willing to spend. They had to spend a lot of time. They took, you know, a lot of time out of that year that they could have been studying things that are, you know, that are of more immediate interest to them, like, you know, exoplanets. So I think that's a that's a good beginning.
1: I mean, I, okay. I hear all the time um, from people, why should I care about this topic when I engage on the UAP topic? For me, my answer is very pragmatic is that, you know, I know colleagues that are reporting these and they don't have a way to deal with it or mitigate it as a safety risk. Um, do you ever have that question? Do people ever ask you, why does this matter? Why is this important? You know, why have you dedicated, you know, such a large portion of your life to try and answer the question, to detect these signals, why does it matter?
0: Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a good question because I do get it uh, uh, sometimes. And you know, my answer is it's literally the most important question human beings have. There's like two major questions that human beings have in the big picture. One is what happens after you die, and the other is, are we alone in the universe? And the second question matters because what's weird about humanity is we are alone in our own heads, right? And you look at human history and there's so much horror, you know, we can behave so terribly towards each other. And then other times where, you know, we have this angelic quality, we have altruism and we can treat each other with such compassion. And you wonder like, what's our problem, you know? And having just one example of another civilization or even life, right? Life, just finding any kind of life. Because life is so different than non-life, right? You know, life is creative. It's innovative to just know that we are not an accident, that the life on earth and that human beings are not some kind of like cosmic one-off would tell us that there's, there's possibilities out there, that there's, there, maybe there are other ways of being, that, that there are other examples that we could follow. So I think this question speaks to the deepest, the deepest issues and concerns we have as living creatures. What are we? Who are we? What are we supposed to be doing? And 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 this question of life in the universe is is like speaks directly to that. So if we were to find life in the universe, even if it was, you know, through an indirect detection of biosignatures, it would f- fundamentally change our philosophical perspective about who we are. Just the way when we figured out with the Copernican revolution that it was the sun that was, you know, the the, the earth went around the sun, not the other way around. That completely rewired our understanding. The question of are we alone is is equally important.
1: A true paradigm shift. Well, Adam, I think that one of the most motivating things that we can do as a society is to essentially explore space and to look out there and see what else we can find. So I think you're doing absolutely fantastic work by being on that ledge and, and looking over to the other side for us. So I appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you. Uh, this was a great conversation. I also want to say the same thing for you. I appreciate the honesty and, uh, uh, you know, the courage that you had in coming forth and the way you've done it in a way that is, you know, agnostic, because that's the right way for all of us to sort of approach these topics.
1: Thank you. Again, Adam's book here. Adam, thank you again for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope we can do this again sometime, maybe next time in person.
0: Great, Ryan. I would, I would really enjoy that.
1: Take care.